Thanks for tuning in to listen to this week's Torah study class. Stay tuned after the Torah study for details on how to stay in touch with this ministry and keep up with all of our content. I hope you enjoy the study. Shalom, everybody. We are back. We are in the survey of the scriptures. And if you remember, if you go down to the bottom of our website and go to the suggested reading sequence, you will see here that Vayikra, Leviticus, and Shemot are parallel books. And so we're going to hit Vayikra next. Everybody remember this? Oh, uh, yeah. Okay. <clears throat> so when we get to Bami Bar, we're going to do Bami Bar and Devarim together. It was kind of hard. I didn't do Job with Genesis because even though they were written concurrently, they are entirely different books. And, um, so I think what we're going to do is study Job before we do, uh, after we do the prophets, perhaps, or maybe I'm, I'm, I'm still mulling it over. We'll figure out where we're going to stick Job. Um, I, actually, I actually thought about doing it right after Bami Bar and Devarim um, and then doing Yehoshua. But anyway... There's the sequence. So we're going to do Vayikra. I didn't. The reason that we didn't do Shemot and Vayikra together is because Shemot is more narrative and Vayikra is more instruction. And we kind of looked at one or two pieces of Vayikra, but it's a it's a difficult book. Vayikra is. So we're going to start that tonight. Somebody have a comment? Where is that? Where could I find that chart? Do you see what I'm looking at right now? Yes. Scroll down all the way to the bottom. And the suggested reading sequence. Ah, thank you. Okay. So let's go to Vayikra and begin. We're going to go to chapter one. All right. Just a little preface here, a little introduction. Vayikra um, is mostly instruction concerning righteousness, in instruction concerning right living, priestly duties. It is called Leviticus because Levi is the name of the tribe of the priesthood, right? So it deals a lot with the priesthood and how they interact and the, the types of sacrifices that are brought to the temple. So what is a, what is a priest? What is a Kohen? Levites. Yeah, they were Levites, but what is functionally a Kohen? Someone who takes care of temple duties. They're uh, an intermediary yeah. between the assembly and Abba. There you go. They are they are an intermediary, a representative, a go-between between God and the nation of Israel. All right. So that's what a Kohen is, is an intermediary. Um, somebody, Joe, I think it was, said service in the temple. That is, they are ministers in his temple. So that is part of their intermediation is that they minister in the temple. But that ministry in the temple is to mediate between God and man. And really, it was for all of mankind, even though this is the nation of Israel and it's 
uh, Levi is one of the 12 tribes and is the tribe that was called, separated, put in the center of the camp. You remember that? Um, around the tabernacle. We probably need to go look at that. Um, maybe I should put that on the website somewhere. Um, I'm trying to think of where I can get it speedily. Well, while you're doing that, I was just going to ask you if you could blow that up. I'm getting old. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, I, mean, I, I usually do, but I neglected to. Oh, yes. Better. <laughs> All right. So. I'm going to have to do it this way. All right, everybody see this? Yes. Yes. So this is my rendition of the camp of Israel, top-down view. And I do believe it looks something like this in regard to how it was laid out. So the tabernacle is in the middle. All right, you can see there's a compass rose up here that tells you east is on the right-hand side, west is on the left, north is at the top, and south is at the bottom. So on the east side is the camp of Yehuda, which also includes Yisachar and Zebulun. Um, and we're going to hit this again when we hit the book of Numbers, by the way. Um, but it, it's, it's helpful to look at it here because they have erected the tabernacle at the end of the book of Shemot, right? Exodus. All right. So they're starting to minister in it. So it's good to have an idea of what the camp might have looked like. All right. There's other versions of it that I really am not fond of because they're just driven by, um, I don't know. A personal preference, um, deceitful doctrine. All right. So <clears throat> the camp, the, the tabernacle is this box. That's the, the, all the cloth walls that we just read about. You remember all of that? Mm -hmm. Yes. All right. So this box here on the inside is the altar. Obviously, it's way oversized. But I just wanted to have you be able to see it because Joe's blind. <laughs> all right so what does this represent this circle here anybody know maybe altar of incense or the showbread no this is you, you you're you're too far we're not that far in yet oh see oh the, the basin yeah the basin the, the bronze laver however you want to refer to it that's the sea the water for washing then you get to the tabernacle itself, the Mishkan, the sacred place, right? And inside there, it's kind of fuzzy, but there's a menorah, all right? The curtain is this wall right here, and behind it is the Ark of the Covenant, which is the throne of God, all right? So the point of showing you this is they're bringing all of these offerings that we're about to read about to this spot on the altar. Obviously, this is not to scale. 
in any way. So don't hold me to it. I'll be utterly critical of it. But, you know, the court of Israel is much bigger than that. The altar is not that big, doesn't consume that much of it. But generally, they bring their, their sacrifice in. They probably lined up. It was probably a huge crowd waiting with all their animals, all the men holding their animal for the sacrifice. They bring it to this point and they slaughter it. And the priests wash what they got to wash. They wash their own hands. They wash their feet before they go in. They put it on the altar, of uh, the burnt offering altar. Everybody got that? Mm -hmm. So we're looking at a top-down view of this, right? And here's the, the, the bronze laver with the water in it, right? Okay. So I just wanted you to remind yourself of where what what's going on when we're talking about bringing an offering. Okay. So the Kohanim have their own offerings that they do inside the sanctuary, but this is going on at that outer altar. Speak unto B'nai Israel and say unto them, when any man of you brings an offering, any man, this is not a Levite, right? This is any man, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. Unto Yahweh, you shall bring your offering of the cattle, of the herd, or of the flock. Okay. If his offering is an olah, somebody define an olah. Burnt offering. A burnt um, offering. What verb does that come from? Who remembers? Is it a lay to go up? Yes, to ascend. And the reason for that is the smoke ascends up to God. He says it'll be a pleasing aroma to him. Now look around you. This smell is wafting throughout Israel. There's no telling how far it might have carried on certain days in the winds, you know. Um, and this, you got to keep in mind, this is a land bridge. Israel is a land bridge between Africa and Asia. And everybody and their mama passed through there. And God, I think he strategically put his temple there so that they would be drawn to it. They would smell that aroma. They would hear the singing. And they would go, what's going on over there? And be brought to Yah. So, you know, we there's a psalm that I read this week that says that all the nations glorify my name. They, my name is, is held up all over the world. Okay. That's why. It's because of where this place was so these burnt offerings did more than just feed the Levites, they called out to the whole world, I believe. Okay, im ola karbano. If the ola karbano, so the ola is the burnt part, karbano is the offering part, karban. All right, Car the, the vav on the end makes it his, it's possessive in this case. His karban, actually the nun vav on the end, makes it his karban. So that's the noun right there, karban. And that means to bring near. And it gets translated further as an offering. So an offering brings you near to God, okay? So the closest that the, the Israelites can get to God physically, is right here at the altar, all right? You can't see it because my taskbar is covering them up, 
But down here is where a lot of people are holding their offerings. See that? There's some over here. They're probably, mm-hmm. they may be eating it there. They, they, if they're single, they might be eating it there. If they're, if their family's with them, they got to go, they got to take their meat out, back out and get it to their family. A lot of people don't realize this. These were meals. That's what communion is supposed to be is meals with God. All right. They brought these animals in. They cooked them. They put, they put salt on them. Um, they cooked them and they split them up. They shared it with the priest and then they took it back out to their family. Um, it wasn't just, hey, take an animal in and get it to God. Joe, do you have your hand up? I saw it. I thought I saw it. But. Yes, sir, I do. Okay. Um, I was just going to mention or comment on what you were saying that they actually ate it as a meal. Um, because for all those so many years, I always thought a burnt offering, like, how's that uh, a sweet aroma unto him? Because I'm thinking they actually like burning it, like a uh, crematorium, like there's nothing left of it. They're just burnt, you know, it's like, uh, it's, it's not taught that it was actually ever a meal that they actually ate. Yeah. Well, some some offerings were just burnt, but a lot of them were cooked and eaten. All right. So um, and it should bubble out in the text. If his offering isn't a lot of the herd, he shall offer it a male without blemish. He shall bring it to the door of the Ohelmoed. That's this door back here on the right. That's the door of the tent of meeting. Actually, it's this is the door of the tent of meeting. He brings it in. It can't, that's what I was saying. He can't go any further than this. This is as far as the average guy can come. The, only the Kohanim can go in. You see everybody on the steps is in white? Yeah. They're Kohanim. They're the only ones who can go in that door. All right. They go in there with blood for atonement. They go in there with meal offerings. They go in there to eat bread, which is on the table of showbread. And all of that should bubble out for us. Okay. He shall bring it to the door of the Ohel Moed that he may be accepted before Yahweh. So there's your ministry part. Accepted before Yahweh. Does anybody know what Ratzon is? Ratsa is the verb. And I, oh. Darkest? I think the ratson, it's um, the animals, the sheep, and the. No, no, that's. No. You're thinking of son. Ah, okay. Oh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true. This is a different word. Does it have anything to do with righteousness or? Not really. Okay. No. It is favor. Ratsa means rotse means I want, right? Rotse, ratsa. Ratson is the noun. Retsono is his noun, his acceptance, his favor, his his. Uh, how did it, how did the translation put it? Um, accepted before Yahweh. So it's in, so he will be wanted before Yahweh. 
if you want to get cut down to the root, the, the root is to want. Um, it's associated with people's will. Rezono is translated as his will a lot of times. All right. So you will be in his will. All right. Does everybody understand what I'm trying to get at? Okay. So that he will be wanted, favored, accepted before Yahweh. And so the point is, he's standing before God, who is represented in that ark, back inside that door that he can't go in. Everybody got that? Yeah. Any thoughts, questions, comments? Because the next thing is kind of a gear shift. Okay. Uh, I, I wanted to ask you, uh, make a difference between um, the kind of offer or the sacrifice that they're doing in there? Like animals or... It does earth? make a difference. It does make a difference. And that's what we're about to cover. Chapters 1 through 7 of Leviticus detail all the different types of offerings. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Um, verse four. Vesamachyado al rosh haula. He shall lean his hand upon. It says lay his hand upon. That's not wrong, and that's the common translation, and it has been butchered in modern theology. All right. He shall lean his hand upon. Yado is his hand on the head of the offering. All right. And here is another. It's a jumble. It's a rearrangement of our word. Now it's Nirza. And it shall be an acceptance for him. All right. Does anybody know what that means? Without looking at the English, obviously. What's this root? Oh, yeah. Is it Kapoor? Yeah, uh, Kapar, Kapar, which is the root word for Yom Kippur, atonement. Mm -hmm. He shall put his hand upon the head of his Allah, his burnt offering. The, so what I want to emphasize is the guy that's putting his hand on the animal is the person who brought it. Okay, not the Kohen. It's the person who brought it, okay? Mm -hmm. He is leaning his hand upon. That's what samach means. Everybody that I know of, there's probably one or two people who have not been through our um, foundations of the faith study, Tehillat Hadavar, the foundations of the word, the elementary principles of the word, that study that we did, I think it's 16 weeks long. It's on our website. If you've been through that, you should know what samach means. It, the noun form of that verb is smicha. All right, so we took the root that we're looking at here and added a hey to it. So it's what kind of, it's a feminine noun, right? Smicha, which is the laying on of hands, the leaning on. So the concept is actually leaning on to it. All right, you're going to see that he leaned upon this or that, and the verb is samach. All right. So the laying on of hands in this case is the transference of what? 
symbolically, but I believe also in a, in a sense, literally. What is, what is being transferred from the man to the animal? Sin. The sin. And the reason I bring that up is because there is a verse. I'll have to go, go gadget it probably to find it. Okay, so it's in 1 Timothy 5, Now look at this. Do not perform smicha hastily on any man. Neither be a partaker of other men's sins. That neither almost look like it separates this from this. But I don't think it does. Does anybody know why I might be trying to drive at this? probably links it because if you're laying your hands onto someone with the intention of imparting something to them, whatever they have could come upon you. Might be a reverse action. And I swear to God, I can't prove it because this is not science. This is spiritual, but I honestly believe that I have experienced that twice where the evil intentions of people that I laid hands on innocently, I felt. All right. And so I do believe that that's why Shul is telling us, don't be quick about it because there is, there is a connection as much, whether we want to believe it or not. And a lot of people don't anymore, but a lot of there is a connection between the physical realm and the spiritual realm. All right. And sins are driven by spirits. All right. We have an enticer. We have a trickster out there. We have a deceiver, uh, you know, a pursuer, an adversary. You know, there's a whole bunch of words that describe the other side of our spiritual life. Right. And so just going around putting hands on anybody whether it be a religious practice or anything else, could be a, a sticky situation. Did you have a question, Dorcas? Um, basically, no, I didn't have a question, but I do agree totally with what you were saying. Um, I have heard many um, exhortation not to, you have to be careful whether who you lay your hands on or who you allow to, Lay your, lay your hand, their hands on you. Yeah. That, so, I, I, you know, I, I, I think my wife is listening. I haven't heard her. She's quiet as a mouse, but um, she had a woman lay her hands on her one time, but, you know, come up and say, let me pray for you. And, and, and I, you know, before she even did, Melanie got the creeps, you know, and, you know, 
I'm not going to speculate about what happened afterward. I think I, I think I kind of know some things, you know, that were related to it. But yes, people that go around just willy nilly laying hands on people, generally, in my opinion, are not very righteous before God. They're more self righteous before God. They think they have they they are God's gift to other people, and people who think that are not being led by his spirit, they're being led by somebody else. And so I got to the point finally where I was like, nope, appreciate it. Don't need it. (laughs) Move on on down the road. You ain't that special, homie. You ain't fixing to lay your hands on me. All right. And so I do believe that's a two-way street. Yeah. Um, Then um, I I have a comment. I think um, that is... Um, I have been, I, I'm certified in bio, bio, bio energy medicine. And, uh, and it's, there is a scientific, um, it's very deep, though, it's very profound, but it's, there is a scientific, uh, explanation for, for this. And when I'm reading this, so that, this is what I love it because I can, I can really, uh, join the scientific uh, explanation that I learned and in the in the spiritual field because um, everything is physics, you know. So uh, everything is into the frequencies and vibrations that we have, and um, and the anions, protons, and I'm not going to get into that much physics, but uh, but we are physics, and um, and physics is also uh, unknown; it's invisible. And and when I'm reading this, I'm understanding perfectly why our hands are so powerful because we have all the all the energy in our in our hands, and um, our hands they can heal or they can destroy, you know. And that's what we're saying. But I I think there is in another time I can I can explain further, you know, the physics because physics is healing, but yeah. it's a healing that is a spiritual healing. Um, and and that makes sense to me. So scientifically, I think there is a way to explain it. It's not easy. Uh, right. It's very profound, but but there is a logic behind of this. Right. I you know that the fact that there is a connection between the physical and the spiritual is you know I'm utterly convinced of that. I you know it's not something that I can replicate in a lab. <laughs> you know it's not something that can be measured. Uh, but I have certainly witnessed it and uh, experienced it. And I have experienced it in the positive direction and also in the negative direction. So I think it is something that we, we do have to be cognizant of. And so in this sense, the, the supplicant who brought the animal is laying his hand on that animal, on his head. Mm-hmm. And the purpose of that is so that he will be the the offering will be accepted before will make atonement for him before Yahweh. So it's he it's he brings it to be accepted, right? And then he performs smicha so that he can be atoned for when that animal dies. So the animal is living at home. This is what a lot of people aren't aware of, but that the next verse is basically telling us that the supplicant himself is uh, killing the bullock. Verse five, and he shall kill the, kill the bullock 
before Yahweh, the animal, whatever his sacrifice was, in this case, a bullet. And Aaron's sons and the priests shall present the blood and dash the blood round about the Mizbeach. Somebody remind us of what a Mizbeach is. Mizbeach. The altar. Is the that, altar. Yeah. The altar. Oh, okay. <clears throat> Isn't that where the ark is? Um, no? No. It's no? this altar right here. He's okay. bringing, so let me move this. I don't know if y'all are seeing what I'm moving, but I've got, I'm going to move it anyway. So do you see, Elizabeth, this pool of water right here? I don't see anything. I mean, I, no, I don't see you. you score, no. You don't see okay. Okay. Now I see it. Do you see the oh, pool okay. of water? Yes. Yeah, yes, yes. All right. Do you see this ramp? Uh-huh. That's the altar. Okay. So the supplicant came in the gate way over here on the right. He brought his animal over here to the bottom of this ramp, probably mm -hmm. between the ramp and this water. Mm -hmm. And somewhere near this water, he cut that animal's throat after he laid his hands on it. Okay. Mm -hmm. The blood is going to be dashed around the horns of the altar. The horns are these four big knobs. So one of these priests might be carrying a vial of blood from one of the supplicants. This went on all day long. Look at how many priests there are. Guess what? They all got to eat. Right? Very true. So um, that's why so many priests had to be in the temple, especially during festival seasons. Okay? But he brings his animal. He lays his hands on it. There is a transference of his guilt of sin onto the animal. And when that animal dies by his hand, this is why I tell people, you cannot blame the Romans and the Jews for Yeshua's death. You're the one who required death. You're the one who required Yeshua to die for you. Every last one of us. And if he didn't, like I say, we're wasting our time. Hello, Daniel. Um, so that's what's going on here. He is bringing his offering. It's killed. The, the, the priests are the ones who bring the blood and dash it around the altar at the door of the tent of meeting. Ohel Moed is the tent of meeting. It stood for this place. All right. So the priest is the one who brings the blood. So that speaks to me. We pray for people all the time, do we not? How many of you have heard uh, older Christians say, plead the blood? All the time. Oh, yeah. There is something to that, but they do it wrong. I think, but it is something that should be addressed when we're praying for people, right? Because did Yeshua just shed his blood for those of us who believe, like the Calvinists teach? No, he did not. He shed it for everybody. Do you think it would be appropriate? Do you think that Yeshua would mind that we ask him to remember his blood for that he shed for those that are sinning? I think you would be honored that we remembered that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's the most important thing that he did. 
was shed his blood. And so that the offering that we're seeing here brought to the base of the altar, every single sacrifice was killed right here in the temple. Every last one of them, every drop of blood that was, that was poured out afterward for atonement was collected right here at the base of the altar. Am I right? Yeah. We're, th- that's the importance of what we're reading is it, it's telling you where to bring your offering to bring it to the door of the tent of meeting. All right. When it became a stone temple, bring it to here. This is effectively bringing it to the door. Like I said, only the white robed guys are up in this direction. All right. So we're the ones if you remember, we did uh, messianic prayers. We studied the, the, the prayers, the daily prayers. Remember that series that we did? Mm-hmm. And what I tried to show you is that when we are praying, we are walking through this sequence of making an offering before God, right? So there is a place when you get in the daily prayers, you get up to Effectively, you're at the altar before God up in heaven. You know, you can't see it. You have to know it. You have to know that that's where you are, right? When you've, when you've prayed and you've done certain things before, the first thing we start out with is remembering the blood of Yeshua every single day, don't we? Mm-hmm. All right, so when you say that, it has put you in front of that altar. Now, we have the ability to go in and stand before the veil, which is his body, right? Mm-hmm. So the thing that I'm trying to point out is what we're seeing in all of the people involved so far, every bit of it is us because we have to be atoned for. So we're the ones that bring an offering and that offering is Yeshua for every case. So every offering that we're going to look at as we go through these next seven chapters is all going to be a picture of Yeshua somehow. Every last one of them. And then the people in it are all of them pictures of us because we are both supplicants and priests in the kingdom right now. Does everybody understand what I'm talking about? Yes, sir. Okay. He shall flay the Olah and cut it to its pieces. So that's what I told you when we started. They're dividing this animal up. They're going to eat it. It's not arbitrary. And the Bnei Aharon, the sons of Aaron, the priest, shall put fire upon the altar, lay wood in order upon the fire. And Aaron's sons, the Kohanim, shall lay the pieces of, and the head and the suet and the order in order upon the wood that is on the fire, which is upon the altar. Its inwards and its legs shall he wash with water. And again, that's why the pool is right there. Hmm. So they're going to wash with water right there. And the Kohen shall make the whole thing smoke on the Mizbeach for a burnt offering, a carbon of fire of a sweet savor unto Yahweh. So this one does not look like it's eaten. It is a burnt offering. If his offering is of the flock, whether of the sheep or goats, for a burnt offering, he shall offer it a male without blemish. So why do you think God is saying if? His offering is of the flock. 
because they would bring what they had according to what they could afford. Bingo. Some of them only raise sheep. Some of them only raise cattle. Some of them could only afford to buy a sheep if they had enough money. If they were if they were a carpenter, they didn't raise animals. They had to go buy one. They couldn't afford a bullock, which is expensive, right? So they brought a goat or a sheep, which is smaller and more affordable. Very good. He'll offer it a male without blemish. Let's talk about that for a minute. What does that mean? It's, it's a perfect example of its breed or species. Or species. There's, no, there's no defects in it. That's right. The word there is tamim. Zahar is male. Tamim. Coming from pure? Perfect. Uh, yeah, pure. Yes, in certain contexts, that word does mean pure. Um, there is a verse that says, Yawa tamim darko. Yahweh, perfect is his way. All right. So Tamim is pure, but in, it's, it's perfect. There's no, that's what it means to be without blemish. There's no sores on it. There's no missing hair on it. There's no feebleness in its knees. There's nothing around its mouth, which you'll see on some cattle. They're unhealthy and you can see it on their nose and mouth. Um, there's no mites on them. There's, they're clean and perfect. They're they're the best. And this was the first stock show. Huh? This was the first stock show. That's right. Yeah, this is the best of the best. You want a blue ribbon. You know, you're bring, you're bringing your blue ribbon cattle to the temp, to the temple. Okay? And you find out in the prophets and I think it might be in our Hathra this week that they bring they brought blemished animals and sick animals and God was like I don't want that stuff. Would you bring that to your to your landlord? Would you bring that to your boss? You're going to bring this to me, and and uh, you know this is why maybe I'm a little oversensitive about it. But I don't like it when people aren't worshiping with us when we're in synagogue when we're, when we're singing. I don't like to to hear or see people talking. I prefer them singing. I, I'm not going to do anything about it. It's not my place to invoke that out of them, but. It does bother me because we're supposed to bring perfect offerings. What are our offerings before God today? Our praise, prayers, worship. Praise, prayers, worship, service. All of that is how we offer things to God. So if we're, if we're in the middle of offering up praises to God and people are standing around chatting or just, you know, just kind of ignoring it, it just, I don't understand it, you know, because. This is what we have <laughs> to give him back, you know, after he's given so much to us. Okay. So, Hamim means perfect. And that's why I beat myself up when I mess up on the piano because that's my offering, you know, and I'm over here bringing it's not Hamim. <laughs> uh, I, I just a little bit, but I do wish I played better. Um, questions, comments? Reach nichoach, a sweet savor. Reach nichoach. I have a. You're muted. 
sorry, uh, when they are burning or the offering, um, are there burning uh, also the visceras? The what? The visceras, the, the liver, the kidney, the organs. Depends on the offering, but yes, they, they had to take, we were told that they had to take out. Right, yeah, I read. Right, but the rest of it, we're going to see that there are sometimes those things are talked about specifically. It's not mentioned. Yeah, but, uh, yeah I think but my question is, are, are the organs and the meat of the animal cooked at the same time or they were separated? The, the animal had the organs inside? I think they were. I think that might be what this is. Okay, yes. Because I, I, that's an old word that we don't use anymore. Mm -hmm. um, so let's look at it. Well, it said earlier uh, to wash the entrails. So that might yeah, be. But that, that can be only the intestines, but uh, I like the tissue around the loins, the kidneys of animals, ox, sheep, goat, the heart, the heart, the fat, the fatty tissues of animal. All right. So it looks to me like it's cooked with it. The whole animal, except for the entrails. All right. Cut it into its pieces, put it on the fire, lay it in order, head the sweat the upon its inwards and its inwards and legs shall wash with water. Where did it say the entrails? I thought maybe it was inwards. I maybe said it wrong. Yeah. I think that was it, the inwards. Yeah. They're probably the inwards. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. They're wash with water and make it all smoke on the on the altar though. The whole thing. Okay. okay. Yeah, I got it now. Okay. okay. Thank, you. Thank you. He shall kill it on the side of the Mizbeach northward before Yahweh and his sons. So it's the same thing with the flock or the sheep, with the goat or the sheep, right? It's the same process. Wash the inwards with water, make it smoke. It is a carbon, a sweet savor, a carbon of fire, a sweet savor. I want to talk about that. Olahu, Ishe, who remembers what the significance of that is? And it was in our life. Ishe, uh, well, fire, but Isha means uh, wife. Very good. So we had that at the end of our first paragraph. Ishe reach nichoach layawa. Ishe reach nichoach layawa. And so the implication there is this could be alluding to, at a very deep level, the bride of Messiah. Have you noticed how scents are involved in the male female relationship in the Bible? Aromas, perfumes. Am I wrong? Never considered it, actually. Am I wrong? Do you remember what? that? What was the question? Do you acknowledge that aromas, scents, perfumes are expressed in the Bible around the male-female relationship? Yes. Uh, I think in... Um... <sighs> I kept, I was, I was reading about it today. It's between, um, it's, a, it's, it's in a, 
uh, Song of Songs, I think. Yeah, absolutely. It's in Proverbs as well. Um, it's in Proverbs in the sense of the harlot who entices men away from righteousness, but it's in the Song of Solomon where the bride makes herself enticing to her beloved one. And so it's not wrong to do, right? But the point that I'm making is you have the word ishe, which is take those dots away, which is how, why does it do that? Take those dots away. And that's what isha looks like, which means wife or woman. Mm. All right. Reach nichoach, sweet savor. So a scent that is sweet to smell. All right. La yawa, unto yawa. All right. And of course, that's alluding to royalty. Okay. So it's at a very deep level, guys. I understand that, but I can't help to see it when I read this. All right. It, it shall be a sweet savor. So how so what is accomplished here for the person who brought the animal? What what got accomplished when that fire started going up for Yah and the blood was poured out on that altar? What was accomplished for that person? The forgiveness of all their sins. Forgiveness yeah. of their sins. Um, no fear of, of destruction from God, right? That what it could not do that our sacrifice in Yeshua does is it couldn't relieve them of their guilt. They still walked away and knew that they were guilty. All right. They didn't have what we experience when we get saved. And I'm, I didn't do quotes to make it trite or silly, but um, there is a moment in my life that I remember when my sins were lifted off of me and I, I was floating. Okay. And that's happened more than once. Um, and that is what this guy who's bringing this animal is trying to achieve. He wants to be right with God. He wouldn't be, he wouldn't be in the temple if he didn't want to be unless he's just being religious. Right. Okay. Are y'all with me tonight? Y'all seem down. Quiet. So do oh, I'm here for sure. Or um, are y'all? Yes. Bored? But I, I think of, of how you, how um, they said that um, the blood of bulls and goats could not give us the clean conscience that Yeshua right. gives us. That's right. All right. So now we go down even further. So there's poor people out there who can't even afford a sheep or a goat. And so they bring something of the birds, which are cheaper. Mm. Turtle doves or young pigeons. Brings it to the Mizbeach. It's a little different execution process. He pinches off his head. Makes it smoke on the altar. His blood will be drained out. So he makes it smoke. Drains the blood on the side of the altar. Take away his crop with the feathers thereof, cast it beside the Mizbech on the east part in the place of the ashes. So that's where the ashes are put is on the east part. Rend it by the wings thereof. He will not divide. So it's a whole bird. The whole bird is cooked. Make it smoke upon the altar, upon the wood. 
and the same thing. So even if you brought the cheapest sacrifice, you get the same thing accomplished before God. So what determines the price? What determines, we've kind of already alluded to it, but what determines that? What a person could afford. What they could afford. So it's it's similar to me of when Yeshua was watching and, and it I'll never forget the, the year when I read that verse and realized that he was specifically waiting to see her put that mite, the widow's mite, to put that mite in the tadaka box. He was sitting there watching and waiting for her, and then he pointed her out and said, look at her. She's given more than everybody because she, she gave a bullock that day because she gave everything she had, right? I was just going to bring that verse up. <laughs> oh, yeah. So it's not the size of the offering. It's the heart of the offering. It's the, it's the motive of the bringer of it that counts. And uh, I think that applies in a lot of ways today, in spiritually and physically. Um, people, people in religious circles look at people's offerings to determine who's going to serve sometimes. You ever seen that? I have. And who's going to sit in the most important places? Who's going to be important? It's how big their check is. And that's why I don't ever look at people's checks. I don't care. I don't want to know what they're given. You know? Um, it's not the size, it's the motivation, it's what the person is trying to achieve. Right? Questions or comments? So that is an Olah. It's not eaten. It's cooked. It's burnt. The ashes are taken to the east side. Guess we'll move on. When anyone brings a Korban Mincha. Korban Mincha. Unto Yahweh, his offering shall be of fine flour. Does anybody know what mincha is? Not the meal offering, right? It's meal. It's a meal offering, yeah. He brings fine flour. Pour oil upon it. Put frankincense thereon. Bring it to Aaron and his sons, and he shall take there out his handful of fine flour of the oil with the frankincense. The Kohen shall make the memorial part thereof smoke upon the altar, a carbon of fire, drawing near of fire, an offering of fire of a sweet savor unto a Yahweh. There it is right there. Same phrase. All right. You could say it this way, a sweet, sweet smelling wife for the for King Yahweh. <laughs> All right. But that which is left of the Mincha shall be Aaron's and his sons. It is a thing most Kodesh of the offerings of Yahweh made by fire. Kodesh Kadashim, most holy. Holy of holies. 
So that bread is called the same thing that that inner sanctuary is called, the Holy of Holies, Kodesh Kadashim. All right. From the wives of Yahweh. I could mistake that. Ishe. It's plural there. It's the most holy of the offerings. And and it's bread here, so I'm thinking ahead of um, Yeshua calls himself the bread of life. Absolutely. Absolutely. And this one is for Aaron and his sons. All right. I told you all those priests got to eat, right? All those guys in white got to eat. Look at all of them. That's a big crowd. That's a big picnic. <laughs> All right. Korban mincha baked in an oven. It shall be unleavened cakes of fine flour. Matzot. Mm. Matzot. Tikrav karban mincha meafe tanur solet halot. Matsut belulot. All right. Unleavened cakes of fine flour mingled with oil or unleavened wafers spread with oil. So we've been seeing this word if, and I want to talk about that. If, 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 if. What does that mean? We've kind of already said it, but I just want to point it out. What is that showing you? Uh, I think it's, it's that this is uh, voluntary. So it's, it's uh, how can I express it? Uh, um, Yahweh is giving us the, the uh, choice. Yeah, it's not compulsory. Exactly. So if if he, he's not mandating it, you know, he's not giving us a command, you must do this, but it's our conscious state uh, or status in our conscious who is going to determine that we we can, in, in that time, you know. Absolutely. I don't know, uh, but it's, it's, it's not... Uh, he is giving us, I say, I, I know the word in Spanish, I'm sorry. Um, he's giving us the freedom. Option. It's an option. It's yeah. an option. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. It is an option. And it's also, uh, God doesn't want to make us do anything that for him that we don't want to. If it's not a willing sacrifice, he doesn't want it. Exactly. So our love or repentance or the 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 need to be in good standing with him that we need to do things. Yeah. Yep. It's a free will. That's what I was trying to find. Uh, a free will. He was the free will. Right. Mm -hmm. Look at this is Second Corinthians 9. Concerning the ministration to the Kedoshim, the holy ones. Ministration. What do we say about the Levites and priests? What did Joe say about the Levites and priests? 
They minister in the in the temple. They minister in the temple. So concerning the ministration to the holy ones, the holy ones here is not the priests. It's everybody in the congregation. It is super superfluous for me to write to you. In other words, I shouldn't be having it. It's kind of, you know, this, this is a given. <laughs> for I know that you have made up your minds, and that is why I boasted of you to the Macedonians, stating that Achaia was ready a year ago, and your zeal has stirred up a great many people. Yet I have sent the brethren so that our pride in you should not be in vain because of this question. For as I have said, you must be prepared. Lest it happen that some Macedonians come with me and find you unprepared, we would be ashamed. For because of our pride in you, we would not say anything which would put the blame on you. Therefore, I thought it necessary to ask these things and to make ready in advance the blessing of which you have long ago been notified that you might have it ready as a blessing and not as though it were forced on you. He's talking about an offering that they have offered and he's coming to collect it. And it's not for Paul. It's for the it's for the holy ones. And this may I can't remember. It may be the famine that was coming to Jerusalem that they were the congregations around the world were helping the Jews out because there was a famine in Israel. All right. So that may be what this applies to, but it may not. But regardless, he says, he who sows sparingly shall reap also sparingly. And he who sows generously shall reap generously. So let every man give. Look at that according to what he has decided in his mind. Not begrudgingly or of compulsion. All of that was expressed in that one word, if, that we just read over in Leviticus three or four times, right? Don't mm -hmm. you think? Yeah. Mm -hmm. For Elohim loves a cheerful giver. He is, God is able to, to make all goodness abound to you and may you always have enough for everything for yourselves and may you abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed liberally and given to the poor and his tzedakah endures forever. We say that over our husbands, you know, I'm not, a, uh, Melanie says this over me every week. He's distributed freely, given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. So it's supposed to be, Giving to God is supposed to be joyfully, not of compulsion. God didn't say, dead gummit, bring me stuff. Right? He gave us the opportunity and he said, you know, I'm good. You know, I'm going to bless you. Why don't you bless others? It's, the, it's really that simple. All right? So it's not of compulsion. Not even the offerings that were brought in the temple. The only ones that were brought that were compulsory, which means thou shalt, is the Yom Kippur offerings. A person had to volunteer to bring a guilt offering if they were guilty of a sin. God ain't saying, you don't come to the temple, I'm going to strike you down. But if they want a relationship with God, they want to be there with it, right? Thoughts? Everybody asleep? No, that's good. That's amazing. Yeah, I always thought it was compulsory. But, you know, I was just thinking about the fact that it's something that is compulsory is not done out of love. Exactly. And in fact, can result in resentment. Yep. And or, or, you know, there's there's a there's a whole host of emotions that can come out of that, especially for people who don't have a lot. And you're telling me I got to give 10 percent. 
Why can't I just bring a little bird? Right. Do you see how, I mean, this little, it's easy. Pigeons are abundant. You can go catch one. You don't even have to pay for it. Right? Mm -hmm. And God's made that equal to the, a prize bull. So really, everybody could be a cheerful giver. Everybody can. Absolutely. That's the point. Some people, uh, Melanie and I, when we've gone, you know, through hard times way back early and, and a little bit more recently because of things that happened in the past. Uh, you know, the way back before I learned this concept, this truth, uh, we felt bad that, that we weren't able to sometimes give 10%. You know, we felt bad. It, it made us sick, you know. And then I study the scriptures and I'm like, wait a minute. <laughs> it's not about a percentage. It's not about the number, you know. And, I, and I've told y'all the story before, so that changed for us. But okay. the preachers will make you feel bad about it too, though. Exactly. They use compulsion to make sure that you're getting what they want you to give. I, the last was probably the second, maybe the second to the last or the one after that, before that church that we went to. The last day we went was the day that they handed out a form and asked you to fill out your, basically it was a, it was, a, you know, a finance statement. How much we made a year. I kid you not. They handed that out at the time of the of the plate passing the plate and wanted to know how much everybody made in a year. Ridiculous. And the implication was so they could figure out whether or not we're given it, what we're supposed to be given by looking at our checks, you know, and we gave cash anyway. We never brought checks. Wasn't none of their business. But that we never went back. And of course, that particular church was in the news not long, about it less than a year after we left for extortion and all kinds of crimes. Hmm. So that's like people when people feel guilty, they're going to stay away from the congregation as well. Exactly. They don't they, if they don't feel like they are equal to other people because they don't have equal money, it's going to make them not want to go. All right. You shall bring in the mincha. So this mincha is being thoroughly described here. The Kohen brings it to the altar. He'll take it off of the altar, the memorial part thereof, and make it smoke upon the altar, a carbon of fire. There's that same phrase over and over and over again. It'd be interesting to count how many times it is. I may do that. Not tonight, but in my off time, I may count how many times we see that phrase in this book. It is a thing most holy. All right, so there's that same phrase again. A lot of repetition here. So all of these things are very, very sacred, right? No mincha, meal offering, shall be made with leaven. This is in the temple. That doesn't mean that you can't eat leaven ever. <laughs> this is in the temple. It's symbolic of sin, right? Mm-hmm. All right, and, and there are offerings which have leaven in them. That's what a lot of people don't realize. 
for you shall the meat the mincha doesn't have leaven in it. You shall make no leaven or honey smoke as a carbon of fire unto Yahweh. No honey. Yeah. Not in the mincha. As an offering of first fruits, you may bring them unto Yahweh. What? Bring what? As a first fruits. Leaven and the honey. Leaven and the honey. They shall not come up for a sweet savor on the Mizbeach. All right, so that's an interesting. That's an interesting thought right there, is you bring those for first fruits. So people that collect honey have an opportunity to bring an offering, right? Because not everybody does that. All right. You shall season it with salt. Every mincha is seasoned with salt. You shall not let it lack. With all your offerings, you shall offer salt. And if you bring a mincha, a meal offering of first fruits unto Yah, you shall bring for a mincha your bikrim aviv grain parched with fire. So the aviv grain is the first fruits offering. Groats of, fresh, of the fresh ear. Put oil upon it, lay frankincense on it. It is a meal offering, and the Kohen shall make the memorial part of it smoke. The groats thereof and the oil thereof, the frankincense thereof, and there's our same phrase again. Questions or comments? Where it says, um, on all the offerings you shall put salt in it. It's only on all the meal, meal offerings. So far, the meal offerings have salt on them. Right. And so far, the meal offerings, the mincha offerings, are without leaven. Right. It's like I said, there is, there are offerings in the temple that were made with leaven. There's bread that is made with leaven. As a matter of fact, I think even the bread that's on the, the, the shulchan has leaven in it. Okay. So I, I want, and the reason for that is spiritually, there is good leaven and bad leaven. And Yeshua says that. And I struggle to remember where that is. It's in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians or 2 Corinthians. I think it's 1 Corinthians 5. Let's just look there. I think that's where it is. Maybe not. Yeah, there it is. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven will leaven the whole lump? Clean out, therefore, the old leaven that you may be a new lump so that you can be matzot. Our Pesach is Mashiach, who was sacrificed for our sake. Therefore, let us celebrate the Hag, which is Passover. This is in First Corinthians. Not with old leavening, neither with the leavening of evil and bitterness, but with the leavening of purity. And Kedusha, it would be interesting if that word for purity would be Tamim. Mm -hmm. It could be. We'd have to look in the Aramaic. Do you want to do that? Sure. Yeah. What verse is that? Verse 8. 
Uh, I wish they'd get this fixed. This site has been broken for a while. Tahor. But the Aramaic may be It may be Tamim may be better. I'll look at it. I'll look into that when I get to that translation. Um, purity and truth, right? Purity and holiness. So you get the point that I'm making. There's good leavening in the temple. There's bad. There's there's leavened stuff in the temple, and there's unleavened stuff in the temple because there is such a thing as good leaven. It's it's what we sow. We sow words into our lives. We sow words into other people's lives. We sow thoughts of the heart, goodness that we give to other people or bitterness that we give to other people, those things are like leavening and they can spread. You, you ever notice that when you, if you have a group of people who are cheerful and one person walks up and they're in a foul mood for whatever reason, it just ruins it for everybody. Mm-hmm. That's true. In my mind, that's a form of leavening because it just that quick spoils the mood. Or, Vice versa. Some people can be sitting around complaining about something and Mr. Joe Happy walks in (laughs) and everybody forgets their problems because he's sowing goodness and truth and joy and stuff like that. You getting what I'm driving at? So leaven in the temple is symbolic of things that we sow. It can either lift us up or they can destroy us. Okay. Daniel, quiet. Um, that that reminds me, Daniel, of what you said a little while ago about being careful who you laid your hands on. Absolutely. Vice versa. Absolutely. A zevach of shalom. What is that? Peace offering? Uh, close. Zevach. Slightly different than an offering. Mm. I've told y'all this relatively recently when we were talking about the altar, because that's the root word of the altar, Mizbech. Put that mem in front of it. And the verb becomes a noun. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So what's the verb? Mm. The dwelling. No, no, it's not dwelling. It's Mishkan's dwelling. It's sacrifice. Ah. Ah. All right. The Olah was an offering. This is a sacrifice. What's the difference? Mm-hmm. This one, is this one more compulsory? That's what I was going to say. Yeah. We'll, we'll find out, but it, it's almost implied that it's compulsory. Yeah. 
All right, same thing. It's tamim, which is perfect. The animal has to be perfect. So that's similar to the Allah, right? Mm -hmm. Lay his hand upon it. Same thing. On the head, kill it at the door, same place. Dash of blood, just like the other, just like the Allah. He shall present his zevach, his sacrifice of peace. A carbon of fire unto Yahweh. There's that phrase. Ishe Yahweh. Fat that covers the inwards and all the fat that is upon the inwards and the two kidneys and the fat that is on them, which is by the loins and the, which he shall take away hard by the kidneys. So this is the difference, Alicia. The offering that you're going to eat, those things are separated. Yeah, that's what I, I think I'd read it before and I was confused. Yeah. You know, for, for the, the difference. Yeah, so because this one's going to be eaten. But the other one too. No, the other one is a burnt offering. But you said that the priest had to eat. Uh, I was speaking generally about offerings, but that was before we started reading. Okay. All right. The Ola is small. It, it's a burnt offering. It just cooks on the altar. That's it. You don't. Okay. So, the so only thing was that was eaten in chapter one and two is the mincha so far. Okay. So this one we should we should see this one is going to be eaten. So, what is the difference? Um, the purpose the, of the offering. The purpose. Mm -hmm. Yeah. This one is to make peace between God and man, or between man and man. Oh, this is for peace. Okay. All right. So this is a sacrifice. Mm -hmm. An offering is something you just, we just, we saw it. The offering was brought free will. Like for atonement. Right. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. All right. This one is a sacrifice. Okay. Make it smoke upon the altar, which is upon the wood that is on the fire, carbon. Everything is similar except the way it's cooked, right? Mm -hmm. All right. Well, the way it's butchered, at least. Yeah. Given. So he's given an option if, it's, if he's, it has to make a sacrifice of shalom for some reason. He's given an option if he can't afford a bullock. Same thing, he steps down. Lay his hand upon it, kill it. Aaron's sons will dash the blood, present the, the sacrifice of peace. The fat, the fat tail entire, which he shall take away hard by the rump bone and the fat that covers the inwards and all the fat that is on the inwards and the two kidneys and the fat that is upon them, which is by the loins and the lobe of the liver. He'll take it away by the kidneys, and the Kohen shall make it smoke upon the mispeh. It is the food of the offering made by fire. So this one is a food. All right, so we go down to verse 11. Well, and I noticed that this one said it could be uh, a male or female. Yep. Because it seems like the most of the time it's uh, the offering is a, a male animal. Look at this. 
The word for food here is lechem. It's not ochel. It's lechem. Bread. Lechem means bread, but it, it, it also means food. Okay. And the reason I say that is we're talking about a peace offering. And uh, if this, this root word for bread or food, food is, let's, food is the root word, I think. And it gets sort of extrapolated to bread in certain contexts. But if I put a mem in front of it and a hay behind it, what word do I have? Does anybody know? Melech. No. Didn't you said a mem in front of what? A hay behind the mem. Behind the mem. Milchama. Milchama. What is that? Battle. War. Battle. War. All right. So you have, this is a peace offering. And it's settling. It sounds like the, the peace offering is settling two different parties, right? So it's changing war to bread. So it's like it's a battle with your wife. Is this the shot right after? <laughs> <laughs> I did not say that. <laughs> <laughs> it's food, but do, do, do you see the point that I'm trying to make, though? All war, all but most warfare, ultimately is fought over food because food. it's fought over money. And the reason people want money is because they never want to worry about eating. When you get down to it, you know, Daniel. And these type of offerings uh, were done any day of the week. Yes. Okay. So he separates the flock and the goat under the peace offerings. You see that? Mm -hmm. Whereas when we were looking at the Olah, flock and the goat were very similar. So let's see what's different. Why? Let's see if we can discern why they're separated. And if this offering is a goat, then he shall present it before Yahweh, and he shall lay his hand upon the head of it and kill it, dash the blood against the altar round about, present thereof his offering, even a carbon of fire, the fat that covers the inwards, the two kidneys, the fat that is upon them, which is by the loins, low, same language. Make them smoke upon them, he's back. It is a food offering made by fire for a sweet savor. All the fat is for Yahweh. So that, all of the inner stuff that we took out is burned for Yah. All right. It shall be a perpetual statute throughout your generations and all your dwellings that you shall eat neither fat nor blood. Mm -hmm. Ah, this first year, yeah. I've had a lot of people say, you can't eat the fat, this and that, but it just means the fat of the goat on this particular offering. That's right. But I wonder why the goat, um, I'm kind of thinking, I don't know. Uh, there's like a, a strong correlation with the Muslim community with a goat for some reason. So I'm wondering why the goat, if there's anything with, to do with that. Like, I don't know. Why is it separated? Why is it so different? 
I'm wondering if it's uh, because I don't. I'm I'm not sure, but uh, like in the go the goat's milk is very similar uh, than milk. human milk. Yes. So I'm wondering if it's the same thing. It has to be related to something like that. Well, that that probably has to do with it because uh, you may not be aware of it, but the Canaanites worship a goat. Mm. Okay. If I'm not mistaken, Molech was a goat goat god. Okay. Um, you'll see that very much in our culture today. I've seen a goat-headed god flying all over the place. I mean, he's just everywhere. And so I think that there is something deeper than what we see on the surface in God separating the two for a peace offering. All right. Also, the goat in particular, and this may be related to what Alicia just mentioned, is the only thing that we're told can't we can't cook the kid goat in its mother's milk, right? Mm-hmm. Didn't say that about a calf. Right. Right? And mm-hmm. so what I have read has been a long time, and I, I, I maybe I should circle back and check the veracity of it because I don't have it written down. I don't have a valid source in my mind. But what I have read is that um, since archaeology developed people have been digging in israel and finding a lot of stuff especially about the canaanites and they have found that that was a particular ritual that they did with a goat cooking a kid in its mother's milk was part of their pagan worship so um it may have something to do with that as to why god separated them especially concerning a peace offering Mm -hmm. um it may have something to do with what alicia was talking about the the fact that the the milk is so similar to human milk and the goat's physiology is different than the sheep's. So I don't know the science behind that as to why God would do that. I guarantee you there's probably some science behind it. I don't know what it is. Um, but it also may have something to do with the spirituality of, you know, the, the symbols of the goat, even in the scriptures. Mm-hmm. Um, be surprised how many times goats are mentioned and you don't you didn't realize it in your English Bibles. Um alluded to, I should say. There might be something to that. We'll keep our eye out for it. So you're you saying that the the last line that you shall eat neither fat nor blood is just related to the goat itself? It's related to this this Commandment, yes, that's the perpetual statute. So you're right. I don't think that you can extrapolate never to eat fat or blood from that, okay? We are told in another place not to eat blood. Life is in the blood. We're not told anywhere else not to eat fat. As a matter of fact, we are told in other places that we're going to eat the fat. And so what Joe, Joe is pointing out is that this particular commandment, fat and blood, is particular to this offering. Yeah. Okay? Because we didn't have that specification up here. This is the difference. 
between the goat offering and the flock offering. Right. Right. So I do believe that it just applies to the goat and that, mm-hmm. and that's that's what differentiated this from this. And the flock there is sheep. Right. Okay. Mm-hmm. Further I was just thinking as as we're going through this, you know, like if the offering is this, if the offering is that, and the offering is this, the offering is that, and then everything it says is for the most part, pretty much the same, right? Now we're seeing a couple of minor differences. Could it be, I mean, yeah, I know that Israeli children start off with this book, but could it be a thing of this is a instruction book and so someone's like looking for what they're going to bring and offer if they have access to a Torah, they're going to go to that spot to see, well, this is what I have. What should I do with it? Should it be something that simple or? I mean, it could be. Um... In temple times, people didn't carry a Bible around. Um, they did in in first century and pre-first century in the synagogue era. They did go to synagogue every day. A lot of men did, based on what I've read in the past. And like I said, a lot of my knowledge is old and may need to be verified. But um, they went to synagogue every day to, to study the scriptures, morning and night in some circles. They go in the morning, then they go to the field and work, then they go back to the synagogue, then they go home. And uh, so they should have known what to do when they went to the temple. And that was kind of the point of studying them so much. Um, so, yeah, I would say it is a reference for that. But they couldn't carry the scrolls with them. Very few people had scrolls outside of the synagogue. It's hard, expensive as a year's salary. For a scribe, write one scroll, get a year's salary. You know, I mean, they were expensive. They still are, by the way. Um, (laughs) You know, last I checked, brand new Torah scrolls written by a scribe today are probably sixty or seventy thousand dollars. Wow, one scroll. Um, I'm talking brand new. A person who has been commissioned to write one, they are off the charts expensive. They go down over the years because they're used, and that's how we'll have to buy our next one as well, I'm sure. Uh, Labor-intensive. Very labor-intensive, big, huge job. And so, yeah, you didn't carry one around in your pocket. Shaul had a book of scrolls. Did you know that? Yep. Shaul at one time was a pretty well-off guy. He said to himself, I have been rich and I have been poor. and but he, in one of his less, smaller letters toward the back of the book, he wrote, he, he tells one of his friends to go pick up my scrolls. So I don't know how long he had them. I don't know how old they were, but he had some money in those bags because they were expensive. Hey, what about the one that we're currently using? It's cheap. It's machine made. Oh, machine made. Okay. Yeah. If, if it were handwritten, it'd be different. Uh, I don't know if you ever heard the story of our former place in the scroll we had there, but we paid $5,000 for it and it's 90, a hundred years old. Wow. Um, so maybe we'll get a good one soon. I don't know. Thoughts, questions, comments. We've got a few more minutes, I think. Well, 20. 
Daniel, um, Moses was part of the Levites? Oh. Yes, he was a Levite. Aaron yes. was his brother, and Aaron was a Levite. Oh, okay. Levi would have been, Levi would have been Moses and Aaron. They were brothers. That would have been their great, great, great grandfather, something, something like that. I don't know how many greats they would be, but Levi would have been their grandfather. And so, yeah, they were Levites. Moses was a Levite. So, Daniel, what I saw in the in the in the uh, photograph that you in the picture that you show us, uh, many, yeah, many many rabbis. Uh, I, I never thought there were so many. These aren't so, rabbis. They're not. No, they're priests. Oh, priests. Well. Um, why there were so many? It was like a, they they had a. Um, I haven't read anything uh, in relation to uh, to them as far as how they were distributed because I I never thought in my mind that there was that many. All right, we can let's let's do this. Hopefully, I can find it quickly. We are going to go to I believe it's. Second Chronicles, somebody be ready to help me if I'm wrong, because I'm fishing from my mind for this. I think it's chapter eight of Second Chronicles. I think this might be it. What are you roughly looking for, Daniel? I'm looking for the the, uh, the division of the priests. I found it. It's verse 14. Okay. And he appointed according to the ordinance of David, his father. So David, if you're not aware of this, David designed the temple. David designed the worship. David planned all the wrote all the prayers for the house. David said, all of this in place, David wanted to do this. But God said, you're not doing it, your son is. Okay? So Solomon here is appointing, according to David's instructions, the courses of the Kohanim to their service. So what that's talking about is, I'm kind of glad you had asked this question, because what that's talking about is, the year was divided up into two-week sections. Mm -hmm. And all the Kohanim would take priestly duty for two weeks out of the year twice. In the spring, the first course would go on the first day of the new year when the Aviv is, is spotted and the barley is, is declared right, and the new year starts, that's the first course of the priests, okay? And you're about to see their names, all right? So they serve for two weeks, and then Passover happens. At Passover, all of them come in. So what, what this guy painted in this painting is probably intended to reflect when all of the priests are there for the high days either for Passover or, or Sukkot or Yom Kippur, okay? So that's why there would be so many in the temple. But there were still a lot, even just for one course of priests. 
And you're going to see that here in a second. Because what happened is the priests would come from all over the land of Israel. And so they would go live in their assigned dwelling places for the rest of the year. But force one for the first two weeks of the year went to Jerusalem. Then they had to stay to be there for the week of Passover because every priest had to be there. Why? Because every man was commanded, they were commanded to be there. The number of sacrifices, people are bringing their tithe at those hog feasts. They are bringing everything they want to give to God at those, at those hagot, at those feasts. So all of the priests had to be there to handle all of those sacrifices that were going to be brought in all day long. <laughs> People were bringing their, their, their offerings to God and they wanted them, they wanted to present them. So all of the priests had to be there. So, and the Leviim to their charges to pray. So the, to pray. So this is a job of the Kohenim and the Leviim to praise, to minister. Look at the praise going on. What do you see back over here on the right? Mm -hmm. You see singers in the front row. You might, you see harpists in the second row. Trumpeters in the back two rows. Do you see that? Yeah. It's basically a choir. I would love to hear that. All right. So what's going on here? All right. Doorkeepers for their courses at the gate. So that's part of the priestly duty is to stand at the door and make sure that people coming in are circumcised and clean. That's what it means to keep gates and doors, is to make sure that the people coming in belong there, right? For so had David the man of Elohim commanded. They departed not from the commandment of the king unto the priests and the Levites concerning any matter or concerning the treasure. So all the work of Shlomo was set in order from the day of the foundation of the house of Yahweh until it was finished. And it was perfected. All right, there's somewhere where the priestly orders are actually named, and I'm just forgetting where that is. Uh, I have to do a search to find out. I thought it was also listed in that chapter, but it's not. Dang it. So I imagine what um, Yeshua had to confront with all those priests. Yeah. That was overwhelming. So the orders, it looks like they're listed in First Chronicles. First Chronicles, okay. Chapter 24. The courses of the sons of Aaron were these, the sons of Aaron, Nadav and Avihu, all right. That was original. Of the sons of Eleazar, there were 16, heads of father's houses, Itamar, they, these were divided by lot. 
one sort with another, for they were princes of the holy princes of Elohim. Here we go. The first lot came forth to Yehoiarif, the second to Yedayah, the third to Harim, the fourth to Seorim, the fifth to Malchiah, the sixth to Miamin, the seventh to Hakots, and the eighth to Aviyah. The eighth courts is very important to us. Who knows why? It um it gives us uh, Yochanan's uh, date of conception. Yochanan Hamadbil, John the Baptist, is descended from this man right here. His dad, Zechariah, was a priest in the order of Abijah. You remember it as Abijah from your King James and other translations Bibles. That's Aviyah. So this is the course, the priestly course. It's the eighth one. I don't have time to do the math in my head, and I'm not, I'm, I'm not that adept to do it. I could probably pull it off, but I'm not going to. I'm just going to tell you that the eighth course met in early June. All right, based on this guy's course meeting in the first week, first two weeks, including Passover. All right, this guy is the next two weeks. So we've gone four weeks, right? This guy is the next two weeks, so that's six weeks. This guy is the next two weeks, that's eight weeks. This guy is the next two weeks, that's 10, 12, 14, 16 weeks, right, to Avia? How many months is that? 16 weeks? Four. That's four months. So that's early March, March, April, May, June. So right around the June time frame is when this was going on, and that's important because it's set. And I just, I'm just doing that rough with Passover in there, right? So don't hold me to it, but it, I'm showing you that it's, it puts it in the June time frame. And that is when Ab Abijah's course met. So that's what we're seeing going on. And I think it tells you the number. Somewhere it might tell us the number of how many there were in each course originally. But I don't have that in my head. It was a significant number of men, though. And so that's why, Alicia, you're seeing so many priests in here. And I, again, I think this is trying to reflect a high day. However, on a high day, this whole court back here would probably be packed. Yeah, it looks light. It's not. The there. crowd is light back there, right? Yeah. During Sukkot, that courtyard and this courtyard were packed. So this may be regular service. So that shows you how many priests there are. Because if, if there's this many for one course of priests, how many are there going to be? Okay. And they may not all be there. I don't know how they worked it. You know, they might have rotated during the high days. You know, I don't think anybody really knows. But do you get what I'm trying to say? Yes. And y'all are bugging me. Y'all are so quiet tonight. <laughs> it's, it's very, very good. Very profound, very nice. Um, uh, it would have been exhausting for these guys, for them to try oh. to 
make sacrifices for an entire 12 or eight or 10 hours would just wipe them out. Yeah. There was some, there was some rotation going on undoubtedly. You know, I, I don't know if there's any documentation as to how they divided the shifts. I think there is in the Mishnah, but it's not important to found doctrine for us. It's just interesting to study. And it's important to understand that this was a big, huge process every single day. Yes. Yes. And I've told y'all before, this this is the morning sacrifices. And the reason I know that is because of the glare Mm -hmm. on that disc right there that they hung, that hung a gold disc that hung off that door. And when the sun hit it, praises and prayers started. Mm -hmm. Okay. So. This is what we are emulating every day in our spiritual life is in our worship to God. So um, I think it's worth studying myself. Yeah. Thank you, Dan. Thank you very much. Get anything out of that? And yes, in a sense, in a sense as, um, as believers and being that kingdom of priests, you know, as the sun circles the globe and you know all the we are all awakening and rising we're going through our day we're praying Mm -hmm. it's like you could you could kind of think that you know that the the prayers of god's children are are being lifted up 24 hours a day through you know through all the various people all around the world because we're awake at different times um if we're on one side of the globe or the other even congregationally, you know, I, I get up earlier than some of y'all and some of y'all might get up earlier than me. And, mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, I, I, my lunchtime when I do midday prayers is at 11 o'clock. Somebody else might not be doing theirs until noon, you know, mm-hmm. so we're, we're staggering. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, it's a, it's a big, huge part of our life. But the, the cool thing is, is that all the sacrificing that they had to do, all the physical labor, that wasn't easy work. Yes. That was not easy work. Butchering and cooking in the same day, over and over, all day long, that was, these guys were serious men. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, um, I dressed we, 10 chickens at one time, and that was exhausting enough. Oh, my gosh. Doing, I remember doing two. Dressing one hog in the winter. Shame on us for eating hog, but we did it. That's some work, dude. Hanging yep. that thing up in a tree. <laughs> you know, and they're bringing bulls in there. <laughs> no, and they blood. Yeah. I think yeah. they would get dirty. And then yeah, and they're, they're they need kinda, to go and change. I mean, it's. They might. I mean, I mean, I don't know what they did. I don't know all of the practicality of it, but uh, I bet they had was, people just sharpening knives all day long. They probably did. You know, there was they. Like I told you, there were guys that manned the squeegees to push the blood into that trench to push it out of the out of the temple, so it wouldn't make a mess and disease be everywhere. They constantly pouring water on that blood and driving it into that ditch to keep it clean. So it was work. These guys, when they were in the temple, they worked, you know, so it's a big deal. And all of it is for the ministration of God's business, getting praises, ministration, prayers, offering, sacrifices, getting it all done. 
And we're supposed to be taking the place of all of this by our lives. Do you realize that? We are the temple. And the fact that some people only serve God on Sunday or, or whatever day they pick just bothers me. <laughs> you know, we need, you know, when, when Yeshua looked out over the fields and said, look, they're white to harvest and the laborers are few. You know, I think, I think it's even worse today. <laughs> I think so. All right. Anything else? All you love, wake up. You, you, you were right in um, everything you were saying. You know, um, it just it makes me think back to uh, a few weeks ago when we were talking about um, doing the work of God with a slack hand. You know, yeah. and I I know that's something that um, I personally um, that that that's convicting for me, and I I really need to do a better job of that myself. But just in general, believers nowadays, I mean, seeing all all this hard work and effort that they put into this. The funny thing about it is everything that 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 we do because of God, he deserves it all. He deserves all the honor, the glory, the praise. He deserves the hard work that you, you see these guys were putting into it. He de he deserves that. Hasatan, the enemy, the adversary, he desires all that praise and all those things from men. And many people out of the world give it to him. Yeah. It's, it's, it's crazy how much he it gets... Is from his following over what God gets from the people oh, who yeah. claim to be believers, you know? And, and this is, is preaching to myself as well, you know what I'm saying? But it's, it's we, we really need to consider that. Like, all those other little G-gods, they don't deserve all the honor, the glory, and the praise. He's the definition of righteousness. He, he is the true one and only God that, des that truly deserves it. It's the righteous thing to give him all of that. And to, yeah. to put that dedication into the things of God. And so, you know, just, we got to do a better job. You know, and uh, I definitely myself have to. I'll, I'll tell you this. You know, it was 20. Let's see. I changed jobs in 2001, I believe it was. Yeah. So it would have been around 2001. So 20 to 21, 20, almost 22 years ago, maybe. I did some work down in uh, outside of Sugarland at a coal mining, or not mining, but a coal facility, mm -hmm. uh, energy production facility that used coal for energy. Um, and there was a Muslim there. And I was there for two to three months, I think, driving down there every day. And every single day, that Muslim would do his prayers. Mm -hmm. he'd go into his office put his little rug out put his butt up in the air and pray and believers aren't doing that right but but it's, it's tons of other muslims like him muslims, putting in that type of dedication to allah exactly you know? exactly and and it, it it it's and they're they're more unified than yep. the body of Messiah seems to be. And uh, while their Christianity is still, and I'm speaking very broadly when I say that, is still numerically the largest religion in the world, but it's changing fast. And we certainly know that those who claim to be believers oftentimes are not. Yeah. 
And then even of those genuine believers, most of them are lazy. And they're, they're lackadaisical in their faith. And uh, that's why, to me, the seven letters in, in the Hikalut are so important because Yeshua addresses that. And but people don't respond to it. And, you yeah. know, I, I try to invoke a response and try to encourage. I'm, I'm, I'm trying everything I possibly can do just to wake some people up and get them to join us in doing the work of the kingdom. And it's the, the body of Messiah is so dispersed and divided and contentious and it's crazy i know and and we can't get this done it seems sometimes you know i would you know y'all have told i've told y'all about the kid that came back after a year yeah remember that yes well looks like maybe somebody either maybe his pastor or his parents told him not to talk to him. Oh, wow. Because this is one of the, this kid loved me last year, come up and hug me, look at, look, little bitty guy, look up at me. Do you like me, Mr. Crouch? You know, and, mm-hmm. and uh, it was all over me. And now he won't even look my way. I forced him to give me a fist bump today and he kind of reluctantly did it. I know what happened. And that breaks my heart for him and for his, for them, for, for putting that in it, you know, when they, when they don't even endeavor to understand what it is that I was saying to him. So it, it's sad. And, uh, you know, I know of faithful people who are praying every day, three times at least, you know, and I wish I could encourage more people to it. That's why I wrote the Sador. <laughs> yeah. So it's a big task. Um, you know, God has people all over the world. It's like Betsy said, we're not the only ones. I don't presume that we're the only ones doing it. Mm-hmm. I'm not that not that arrogant. There, there are plenty of people praying for the people of God and for the work of the ministry and stuff like that. I just wish we were more of us were doing it and that we were more reverent about it and more diligent about it and more persistent and consistent about it. That's my prayer. I I don't think that we understand deeply that um, we're not just supposed to go through our lives deciding what it is we want to do and what we feel like doing. Um, We're not we're not really trained up and taught and it's not natural to us. Um, and our flesh to say, what does God want me to do? And how can I find out what he wants me to do? Um, and I think we miss out a lot because of that. Yeah. Well, you know, they had it easy, easier. They didn't have it easy. They had it harder in a lot of ways. You know, the, the first century people, the second century people, the, and the early, well, actually third, third century started getting rough. But one thing they did have, I think, was more unity, even though they didn't have a pope, they didn't have a, a figurehead, they didn't have a, a central location that forced out the doctrine, you know. In my mind, the 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 distribution of the body of Messiah in the first three centuries was it was like 
It was like everywhere you looked at a congregation, there was a pillar of light going straight up to heaven. They were all answering to the Messiah. And so because of that, they were more unified as people. Are you with me? Mm-hmm. Hope you can see the picture I'm trying to paint. Um, but now you've got all these different congregations answering to some authority somewhere other than Yeshua, you know, and they're all arguing with each other. Mm. It's getting worse. Anyway, I'm on a soapbox. So I better get off. <laughs> I, I get where you're coming from, though. I get what you're saying. All right. Avina Malkanu, in the name of your son, Yahweh, Yeshua Mashiach, we give thanks for your word. We ask you to correct our error and, uh, uh, cause your truth to uh, get inside of us and change us. And uh, we thank you for your word. And we ask you to be uh, with us uh, as we chew on it and uh, nurture us by it. Protect us from evil. Protect all of our congregants from evil. And uh, be with us when we assemble together on Shabbat. And we thank you for all of your blessings. Amen. Amen. Thanks for tuning in to listen to this week's Torah study class. In the description, you'll find all the links to our website and social media content. Please make sure you're subscribed to our podcast as we can be found on all major podcast platforms. If you feel compelled to support this ministry, please feel free to do so by donating via the Get the Word Out link in the description. All proceeds go toward growing this platform and the Mikdash Mayat ministry. Till the next time, we pray God blesses you with shalom in the name of Yahweh Yeshua Mashiach.